Before we jump into the latest episode of Freelance Pod, have you heard about our first live podcast recording? That's right. Freelance Pod is going live in front of an audience. We'll be at the London Podcast Festival in September. You can join us at King's Place to watch me make an episode of Freelance Pod with a very special guest. He's a Syrian refugee, a journalist and a stand-up comedian. Abdul Sahan will join me on stage for the event. Here's a clip from episode 30, Being a Refugee is a Dream Come True, where Abdul explains the absurdities of the life in the UK test, which all prospective British citizens have to take. One of the sections in these tests is about British values. And it was one of the, one of the uh, things about British values, the ability to laugh at yourself. And, and I didn't know, this is like, okay, the, the, the ability to laugh at, at myself, does that make me British? And there was another one, there was a question, actually a mock test, asking you uh, what, which one of these four British values, and it's going to the pub, um, eating fish and chips, laughing at yourself, or having a university degree. I said, well, obviously not having a university degree, but the rest of them, the three of them could be, any of them could be British value, like have eaten fish and chips while you're at the pub and laughing at yourself. That's it, I've cracked it. Uh, please give me the British citizenship now. If you'd like to hear more from Abdul Tahan, come along and see him interviewed on stage by me at the London Podcast Festival live recording of Freelance Pod. It's happening on Saturday the 7th of September at 2pm. The venue is King's Place, King's Cross, and you can buy tickets for under a tenner at www.kingsplace.co.uk forward slash what's dash on forward slash words forward slash freelance dash pod. You can also find out more about the London Podcast Festival on Twitter at London Podfest or one word. Let me know if you're coming along to my live recording. I'd love to see you there. On to this week's episode been here now for seven years and uh, I still miss parts of the BBC and I still miss the role of being a journalist I mean, I'm not a journalist now I'm, I think I think I'm journalistic but I don't think of myself in that way because I don't practice it but I can't imagine not being in the role I'm in now either so um... hello and welcome to freelance pod my name's Chandrika Chakrabarti and I'll be your host Freelance Pod tells stories about creativity and the digital revolution. I've been a journalist for 13 years now and a podcaster for nearly two, so I've seen a lot of the changes that digital has brought to the media. I've also trained a lot of people on how to deal with all those changes. I'm now freelance and juggle a number of jobs myself, writing for different audiences, making audio, teaching, speaking, presenting. It's a classic portfolio digital career. On each episode of this podcast, I ask a person who works in a creative field to tell me about how the internet has transformed or invented their job. From Twitter's director of curation to Ed Miliband's podcast producer, along with a few appearances from some guy called Charlie Brooker, we've been hearing brilliant stories about how the internet has revolutionised work and, well, our lives. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and why not tell a friend too? This helps our community grow and that enables me to keep making Freelance Pod. You can also sign up for the Freelance Pod newsletter, which comes out every time there's a new episode, which is about every week. You can find the newsletter at suchandrika.substack.com. Suchandrika is spelt S U C H A N D R I K A. So that's suchandrika.substack.com. 
The podcast is also on social, of course. And I do love hearing from you, so feel free to get in touch. You can find it on Twitter at freelance underscore pod underscore. It's on Instagram at freelance pod, all one word. There's also a Facebook group. Just search for freelance pod. The podcast isn't officially on LinkedIn, but you can find me on there too. I'm Sachandrika Chakrabarti, and I do share all that juicy freelance pod content on there. So on to this week's guest. Matt Cook is Head of Partnerships and Training at Google News Lab, part of the Google News Initiative. He's worked for BBC News, and you might remember him as a presenter on 60 Second News on BBC Three. He performed the feat of delivering five news stories to camera in just one minute. Since Matt went to Google, I've been in many of his training sessions over the years, and I still am every now and then. In fact, I interviewed him on a terrace at Google's office in central London on a bright, sunny, but slightly windy day, so you do hear a bit of that. Let's see what he had to say. What um, what made you want to get into journalism? It's a really good question. I remember when I was like seven or eight, I used to record my own bulletins on a uh, tape machine. And I also used to write in felt, black felt tip um, on A4 paper, draw a newspaper with like quite salacious kind of gossip. About who? It was the royal family, actually. Because I send it via post to my relatives who live in New York, and I found one like a couple of years ago. It's like what I thought about Fergie and stuff like that. So it was really weird for like a at that point like a twelve year old to write that. But anyway, so I used to always have an interest in writing and speaking, and I was really interested in that. And then I think when it came to school, I had a real interest in English, really interested in history. That was my favourite topic, and then took some advice that, you know, oh, it's not really, there's not really a good way to, you know, uh, have a job or have a career by going into um, journalism. So I sort of got distracted by it when it came to making choices around A-levels and degree and so on. So I went to uh, do my, mar- uh, my undergraduate at Plymouth University and did it in marketing and management. And it was a four-year course with a third-year kind of sandwich year where I did um, marketing and management at Hewlett-Packard in Reading, Loved it, really good experience, but definitely I did that year at Hewlett-Packard, which was a great place to learn, but at the end of it, I was like, actually, I do want to be a journalist. So I spent the last fourth final year at Plymouth saving money to apply for a postgraduate diploma at what was the London College of Printing in Elephant Castle, uh, now LCC. Did that, loved it, and thought, this is it. Uh, and then did freelancing and, and all the rest of it, and the rest is kind of history. But yeah, always had an interest in in, in telling stories. Got a bit waylaid, but then eventually came back to where I, where, I, where I am now. So I like that you were both print and broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> felt tip, yeah, felt tip broadcast. You're quite uh, multimedia, yeah. Because <laughs> um, often that often that period of time that I did a newspaper journalism course, and like there weren't multimedia courses just about 2005 or six when I was doing mine and uh, they came in a bit later I kind of thought broadcast wasn't open if you went into newspapers I don't I don't know why but did you kind of go onto your course what was your course both broadcasting it was broadcast um journalism and basically we did a week of tv and uh the rest of it was radio and I remember the week of tv was uh you go and do a story film it edit it and all the rest of it so we split up into groups. I remember going with um, a group of four, and some of them are, are TV presenters now or journalists and producers. 
and they chose you different topics around you know, what was going on in London and knife crime and you know sports and stuff. And the one I picked for some weird reason was um, pop-up toilets in Soho. And so I had a week of filming pop-up toilets coming out of the ground in Soho. And it was a real, obviously a real cultural issue at the time. What is it? Like, never. Like those urinals? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they were quite like weird, I suppose. Yeah. I'm not sure it would have made like a two-minute piece on TV, but uh, I made it into a four-minute piece. And um, I think people found it relatively interesting. But I do remember to today interviewing someone from an amazing uh, group who uh, take people around London. And she was talking to me at length about the history of London toilets. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure this is actually interesting, but maybe she's going to save it for me. And she did. Um, my first taste of multimedia was actually at BBC London. And that was a newsroom that had TV, radio and online all in one room, which um, back in like 2005 was unusual and we would have meetings where the person from online would come and the person from radio would come. And that was sort of the norm and how I learned my trade at the BBC, really. What did you think of this internet thing when you turned up at the BBC? Did people kind of look to you as the new young person to explain it? Probably never. Um, <laughs> um, Can you explain I, it now? Yeah, no. no. Uh, I think, so I was at the BBC for eight years and one of the projects I uh, was working on towards the end of my time there was at Richmix, which is a, a public building or kind of a community centre in East London. And around about 2010, the BBC realised they needed to rethink their plan for the Olympic Games. And they realised they needed to reconnect with five boroughs around um, uh, the Olympic Park. So Newham, Tower Hamlets, Greenwich, Barking Dagenham and Hackney. And the job of us being positioned in rich mix away from Marlborough high street, away from television center was to go and find stories in those different communities. And that was really interesting because we were going out there giving cameras to people to film themselves. We were turning um, video into not uh, TV video, but online video, which again in 2010, not everyone was doing. We were experimenting with social media and every story was written for online plus another broadcast. So it could be radio or it could be, TV. And again, that really got me thinking about the different ways of I maybe could approach my career and also the different ways of telling a story. But yeah, not, not every news organization does that. I think that gave me a sense of um, experience in some of the digital areas. But I would say, I still say it now, even though I've been at Google for about seven years, I'm definitely not the tech expert in the room. Uh, I'm looking at the, the tools that we, we've developed and that I see from others from an editorial point of view. And that's always going to be the case, I think. So what point did you start thinking, I'll give presenting a go, or were you kind of asked to do presenting? Well, the first thing to say is it was before high definition. And, and so when HG came in, I thought my time is up. But I actually went to LCP, the London College of Printing, where I did my postgrad. They did a, I think it was a 25 anniversary or something. And it was, I'd been at the BBC for a couple of years and uh, in a relatively junior role. And... I went to this event, heard someone talking on stage, and in the in the bar afterwards, a uh, presenter from what was 60 Second News on BBC Three came up to me and said, um, oh, you know, I heard you talk, or I can't remember how it came about, but basically she, she said, we're looking for people, would you be interested? And I said, oh, yes, absolutely, gave uh, my email address, and then genuinely did think, oh, I know how these things go. Like, it'll be, it's uh, one of those things you'll never hear of. And then, so I actually didn't chase her up myself. 
three days later, her manager did and asked me in for a screen test. And then I, I went in and, and uh, luckily, fortunately for me, they, they selected me as one of their presenters. Um, and I did that for about four years and I did um, BBC three 60 second bulletins, which actually, you know, the way they write them and uh, the way you have to write them to fit five stories into 60 seconds is sounds easy, but it's not. And it's for a specific audience. And in the same shift, you'd then go and present on the news channel uh, a bulletin and do what was on demand news bulletins too. So it was a busy shift, but great at giving me that presentation experience. I use that at BBC London and at BBC uh, Midlands today as well. Um, so it was uh, a good learning. And then from there, how long, how long were you at BBC altogether? About eight years? About eight years. Yeah, so I was at the BBC for eight years. I felt, uh, I, first thing to say, I think the BBC role uh, is the best role I've ever had. I still miss parts of it. But after eight years and, you know, it was an organisa- organisation that had lots of opportunity, but, you know, if you don't always get the roles you want, uh, it, it can get you down a bit. And I think that was part of the reason why I wanted to start looking uh, and then I was approached by someone who worked at Google to support their events as a, an events producer. And it actually took me a year to decide to take that role. And I was very fortunate that that role was still available, or that opportunity rather. Um, and then when I joined Google, immediately I thought, what have I done? And it took me, I would say, about three months to feel okay about it. And then even six months later, I remember really clearly um waking up and being like i'm not sure about this anymore Uh, and that's just being very transparent and and hopefully my manager never hears me say that because i thoroughly enjoyed google at the time uh but i I definitely had a couple of doubts and then i've been here now for seven years and uh i still miss parts of the bbc and i still miss the role of being a journalist i'm not a journalist now i'm you think i think i'm journalistic but i don't think of myself in that way because i don't practice it but I can't imagine not being in the role I'm in now either. So um, I kind of think I've got the best of both experiences really so far. What was that year like? Like what were you turning over in your head when you were deciding between BBC and Google? I think um, ultimately looking at my own career. If I were to stay in the role that I was in, would I get the opportunities I wanted? And I knew the answer was probably no. I didn't really want to move out of London, which was probably a, a bit of a inhibitor to my career at the BBC. I think I probably should have embraced that more. And when I speak to younger journalists now, I always tell them, move out of London straight away and go and uh, get experience out of uh, London newsrooms. Uh, I worked in Birmingham for a year and a half. Didn't know anyone in Birmingham. And Birmingham you know, is an hour and a half away. It's not a million miles away. Had an amazing time there. Came back to London. And I think had I stayed, I probably would have gone to Salford next. And I didn't really fancy it. Uh, and I think um, largely because I, I was born and, and grew up in London and, and my entire network's here. And that makes me sound quite boring when I speak to some people who've travelled the world and everything. But, but a lot of us weigh stuff up like that. I, I'm the same. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think ultimately I just thought I kind of got some of the presentational stuff out of my system as well. Um, I've, I've messed up on television. and What was it. the worst? Well, actually, Lorraine <laughs> Kelly tweeted me. She's always a part of it. <laughs> was, she like, she? was she like, you look great? No, she didn't. 
So I didn't know there were two Dundee football clubs. Oh, there's God. Dundee and there's Dundee United. I'm and so that's that. Specialist football knowledge, come on. Yeah. Sorry, Lorraine. Yeah, sorry, Lorraine. <laughs> Big listener. She, she, she actually supports Dundee United. And I didn't tell you where United. So she called me a numpty on Twitter. And I was like, very, very offended by that at the time. Um, so if Lorraine's listening, oh, I forgive her. Um, that was that. I do the one I've, I've said this on Twitter before, so I don't mind saying it, but I mispronounced uh, for Formula One, it's called Grand Prix. Yeah, I mispronounced that on television, so you can imagine what I said. Uh, and that was quite embarrassing <laughs> on the BBC. Yeah. What did you uh, did you like the adrenaline? Did you like the liveness? Did you like the you know, it's constantly changing? Was the script constantly changing because it's news? And then you go on and you do it. Uh, I, the most adrenaline I ever got actually was actually not in front of the camera because, frankly, you're staring at, uh, especially now, you're staring at you know a, a metal object with not a person behind it. You're in you know a lit room. There's no windows. You can't really see the live uh, presentation outside with people around you. That was quite nerve wracking. But the biggest thing was actually being in the gallery. And if your job as a broadcast assistant in the early days or as a broadcast journalist throughout ever part of your career if your job is to make sure that the the broadcast finishes on time in time for eastenders you know breakfast or whatever that is really nerve-wracking and sometimes you are timing and writing and listening at the same time so they're the kind of really the roles that you don't see when you turn the tv on or turn the radio on they're the most intense roles i've ever did at the bbc yeah and i think that when i'm looking at what I miss the most about the BBC is definitely the people. Uh, I've learned so much from people there and basically grew up as a journalist there. And, um, you know, when, when you're covering something like the London riots of 2011, the entire newsroom comes together and works on one project over, in that case, you know, more than a week. It's really, you can't, um, uh, replace that kind of network of people working together. It doesn't quite happen naturally. And there are other jobs where we respond to events that way, like that's what we miss yeah, about newsroom. I think uh, when you know the newsroom is all working together on one thing or a couple of things, it is really impressive uh, and, and feels really good to be part of that. That's yeah. the bit I miss. Yeah. Um, so coming to Google, had News Labs started in the US and you were kind of the first person working on them in the UK? So the News Lab started in 2015, and my boss at the time, Steve Grove, he uh, sought permission from the uh, head of the, the department, the marketing department, to, to launch it. And her feedback, she uh, said, you can launch it, but you have to launch it in Europe. Uh, and so he came over to London. I'd been at Google for about two years at this point, and he said to me, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about this and, uh, and get your advice. And so then... I remember sitting in this building talking to him about it. I didn't really realise that I was actually in an interview at the time. I obviously realised about, you know, a day later. But it was one of those things where he and someone else were writing notes on paper and I was, you know, waxing lyrical about what I thought about this and that and the other. And then that was an interview I didn't really realise. So that was that. Had formal interviews, became the UK uh, person. And for about six to nine months... I was traveling about twice a week across Europe, uh, doing conferences in, in like Warsaw and Helsinki and uh, representing the company in different countries across Europe and, and all the different challenges and, and questions that were coming up. 
Uh, and then after that, we uh, gained Isa in Berlin and then David in France. So it became like a European group of us eventually. But for the first nine months or so, it was uh, quite intense traveling. What is it like coming to Google and then immediately kind of leaving and having this traveling job? I will say when I give advice, if, if people ask about what they want to do next and, I, and people will come up to you and say, oh, I'm thinking about doing something. How did you do it? And what are your tips? I really wouldn't underestimate what people outside of journalism think about journalism. And I mean that in a good way. Like if you've worked in an organization like the BBC, people understand that and they know it. Same with all the news organizations uh, and the different associations that people in journalism work in. Like it, it carries weight. People care about it. and They know it's important. And um, there'll be people who disagree with that. But from my experience, you know, uh, the skills you gain as a journalist are essential in so many different jobs. You know, if, if you're a producer at a newsroom for TV or radio, that is project management. If you are someone who is organizing where your journalists are sent on a daily basis, that is project management or that is um, strategy and ops. It's just different names for it. I think the, the titles we give to journalists in different news organizations maybe don't always translate so easily, but the skills we really do. And also, when you've done it in a newsroom, it's under pressure to deliver. Yeah, deadlines. You don't have the same level of deadline in the real world. No, and I mean, projects that I work on now definitely do have deadlines, but they're never going to, you know, mean that you uh, have got an hour to go or something. You'll have weeks or months sometimes. Having said that, you can still have projects that, you know, go wrong or projects that do need to be finished literally now. So, um, being used to working to a deadline has definitely helped uh, me think about my career. But also, for those who are thinking about changing or doing something a bit different, get a piece of paper, write down all the things you think are your skill base, and I guarantee you, you'll find another word that describes them that would appropriate themselves for a corporate job. For you, like what's some of the most interesting or unusual or strange things you've seen in all these amazing newsrooms you've been to? It's really interesting. I have been uh, to newsrooms in Europe, Latin America, um, Australia, and the Middle East, and the US. And there are some things which unite them. Generally, they have... Um, coffee. Coffee, yes. They could be a bit more tidy. I'm quite OCD, so... Oh, God, you must have hated journalism. <laughs> But uh, I'd always organise the papers in a certain way, like they were on show or something, but actually, you know... The... And then someone ate their lunch onto it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are definite themes where people um, work and how they work. Like, for example, I'm fascinated by a newsroom layout. I went to one newsroom in uh, close to Dubai, and they have their desks all facing inwards into a round circular desk where the editor sits with TV banks. And it looks like they're on Starship Enterprise. It's amazing. And then you go to, um, I went to one UK publisher and they spent some time putting these desks in with no chairs that people would stand up against. And they went in and they were taken away again. So I find newsroom design, newsroom furniture really fascinating. And it's something which, um, you know, there are patterns in different places um but yeah you do get to see other things you know you know on a more serious note diversity and and not always does the news reflect what you think that the audience could be 
I've also seen levels of diversity in organizations, which surprise me in a good way as well, uh, in the, sometimes in surprising places. What do you think is kind of the enemy of newsrooms diversifying? And what do you think are the benefits of a newsroom diversifying? I think the benefits are clear. And they are, if you speak to real experts, Alison Gow talks about this really well, that reach, uh, when they've done experiments where they talk about um, reaching different parts of their local communities with different kind of content, there perhaps is a, a business case for that. You know, you're getting new audiences and you're getting new ways to meet people and to provide them with content they want. So I think there could be a business case there. I think uh, if you don't have a diverse team, you don't have a diverse narrative, you don't have a diverse uh, appeal. Um, so it's not just a good thing, it's something you should do. It's you know it's something that can really help in terms of those uh, challenges. Like if you're really aiming to have the best stories, if you're drawing from a very shallow pool or yeah. a very narrow path, yeah, you're not getting them. And what, what do you think kind of stops using? So is it, is it a business model thing that's global? I think there's a challenge around hiring. I also understand, I'm not the expert in it, but I understand there's a challenge around retention as well and making sure that once you've got people into your organization that they feel welcome and that they feel they are able to contribute, they are listened to. And if they feel like they're the odd one out in the newsroom and they're not being listened to, they're not going to stay around for long. So whatever it is, they're the challenges, and I've seen some organisations do really well in it. Um, uh, for me, I think in the UK, I, I'm a part of the NCTJ Journalism Diversity Board, and we are supporting that because if you're looking at the cost of training now, the cost of getting into a journalism school now, it's increased and it's uh, much more than uh, what it was when I was uh, entering. So I think there's a social demographic piece here around, you know, the costs, uh, not just um, other forms of diversity, which are of equal importance. The level of debt already and then the low salaries when you get in. And I wonder what we are offering people as an industry. Did you find journalists a bit resistant to taking training from Google? So I was on my own in the UK for about nine months. And then we uh, gained a news lab lead in Germany and France. I'm now a leader group, which is um, across 15 countries. And so I have um, teaching fellows who work for us in different countries. So Spain, Italy, Poland, Netherlands, the UK, uh, Japan and Australia, Kenya, uh, Mexico and the US. And we also have News Lab leads who do training, but also more project and partnership work in Germany, France, Brazil, Argentina, Australia, and based in Singapore. Uh, I think that, yes, and New York now. And so we've got a dispersed global team. Every different country is different and the challenges are different. And uh, the uh, services and the tools we provide in those countries will differ. So, you know, the training we might provide in London will be different to what journalists in Buenos Aires need or want or care about. So we tailor it to wherever we go. Journalists, I think, uh, I hope they see that we come to their newsrooms and their events with not just Google tools, but also a range of different alternatives. We're not selling things. Um, and also, I think... For many years, Google uh, was a company that people didn't quite know how to get in touch with uh, 
a real person. Or, into a ring up. Yeah, you know? who do I, where's Google in the, in the book? And so what we try and do is to bridge that gap and make sure that a journalist who's using a tool or wants to experiment with the tool now knows where they can go, whether it's our website or they actually want to speak to someone in, in real life. And so that's what we're there for. I think you're always going to get journalists who will throw questions uh, and have critical th- thoughts around different approaches, and I think that's natural. Um, but from my experience, people uh, see the service we're giving and detach it from any of their stories they might tell or the reports they're thinking of, and that, that's right as well. We, you know, we're not there to not a, a function to answer to stand up for Google. We're there to provide training on the tools. Is there? So with the theme of the podcast, like how the internet's changed work and working at Google and having worked at the BBC, like a world leader in journalism, what people think of sometimes when they think of journalism, what have been for you some of the most amazing examples of journalism that could only be enabled by the internet? There's one example which I'm talking about quite a bit at the moment. It's about a year old now, but it's BBC Africa Eye. And... The reason why I want to highlight it is, one, because it's won awards, which is nice, but secondly, it's telling a really important story about uh, the news-gathering process. So if people have not seen it, you should find it on uh, the BBC website, and it's Anatomy of a Killing. And they basically uh, go through this video they've been uh, sent or received and pick it apart bit by bit. And the story is really strong and gripping, and it's an uh, important uh, piece of journalism. The reason why I like to talk about it now, though, is because I think it, it shows and signifies a change. People want to see the news gathering process. Uh, you can have a stronger relationship with the audience if you have that kind of um, uh, transparency. And I think that uh, certainly when I showed that in journalism schools and in different publishers, the people um, respond to it really well. So this is the great Twitter thread that kind of looks at verification, looks at how journalists find their news. Um, I agree with you that I think unpacking this. Like, journalism's always been very opaque in its methods, yeah. but now we're often using methods that are open to the public, and so we do, we kind of owe it to them to say, this is how we're using it. If you also want to use it in that way, it's open to you. And there's a saying, which is a horrible saying, but it's like, you don't want... We would never, when we were in the newsrooms before, um, there's a saying, which is quite a horrible one, uh, and I remember an editor of mine used to say, people don't want to see how the sausage is made. And I think now they do. They want to see the process. And actually, I think it's good for people to see the process of journalism and how much work it takes to get a high-quality piece like that out. Yes. And and it comes back to, again, it's like the people behind the camera. And it might not be that it takes that many people to make a digital story but it takes maybe that many tools and it takes maybe using different platforms and doing all of that under pressure and then to have the leader of the free world maybe call a lot of what comes out of media organizations fake news i think it only then really helps journalists cause um with with like the google trust project was that under you guys as well well we funded something called the trust project which is um independent from us but it's at santa clara university um, that is a project along the lines of um, how can we think of building trust markers? Uh, how can publishers create articles that will enable us to mark them as fact check content or as trusted and authoritative? Because ultimately, the algorithm is there to search and rank uh, content 
in a certain order and to present high quality information what more can we do to strengthen the signals that go into the algorithm and the trust project is, is thinking about that there are others looking at that to the credibility coalition uh, and there are others around the world thinking about this in different ways but that's the one of the biggest aims at the moment how can we strengthen and elevate quality information if this is what we need in terms of trust well they have different things so i think there are about 110 indicators or suggestions. That's from one organization that's looking at this too. But they'll have their own markers and, and ways that you as a publisher can identify yourself as a credible source, authoritative source. Um, it's an area of experimentation, and I think you know um, we're doing what we can to work with partners on this. But ultimately, how when I type into my phone a keyword, you know, London votes or whatever it might be, how do I ensure that I'm getting the most authoritative, high-quality content from publishers that know the story well? And then, so what do you consume to find your news? I'm pretty much all over the place, actually, which I'm not sure makes me um, uh, very typical. But I, I'm, I subscribe to a number of different uh, podcasts and um, uh, Any podcast websites. recommendations? This one. Yeah, of course, freelance world. Um, for sure. Um, Do you like like a daily news podcast? Not really. I still, so on my phone I have, I'll show you what I have on my phone. I have uh, the BBC News uh, app, I have the Sky News app and the Guardian. Uh, and uh, then I use the Google News app, which you expect me to say that, wouldn't you? But that gets me kind of content from all over the place. I think you got your journalist hat on, actually. So that's why I asked the question. <laughs> the journalist hat goes firmly back on. You're like, yeah. no, I want the good stuff. Give me, give me the news. Yeah. Uh, but here we've got Bloomberg and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. So oh, there's loads great. of different bits on here. So that serves me different sources all the time. In terms of uh, my actual habits, though, I listen to the Today program every morning. Um, I... When I can, and it's not as often as I'd like, I still finish the day by watching the 10 o'clock news on BBC One. I think I've always got that broadcast background, so maybe I, I look at that more than others might still do. Um, and still on the Sunday, I will go and buy two things. I'll go and buy the, the Observer, but I'll also go and buy um, the Ham and High, which is my local uh, newspaper for where I live. I live in Muswell Hill in North London. And uh, so I typically will buy that when I'm buying, like, milk and bread and stuff like that the thing i don't get enough of is magazines because i travel so much you'd, you'd kind of want to have a magazine but just because i travel so much i don't want to have things on me so that's the thing i don't do i'm trying i'm trying to do less social media on twitter if i'm honest because you can get quite um uh, you can see like the, the, the conversation going round and round about the particular political issues at the moment. So, And actually within the journalism community sometimes we can get stuck on certain issues or like a new tool or something and you're a bit like, are we going to solve it in this Twitter thread? Or like, okay, that, that's yeah, it. let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so my three bits of advice, let's start with the first one. If you are thinking about doing a new role, a new job, a new project, and you're in a newsroom environment and you're thinking about doing something different, one, write down on a piece of paper all your skills and then go and research what those skills are called in different organizations. And you'll start to realize that things that might sound daunting like project management or strategy, you do them on a daily basis. Uh, 
the second thing, if you are looking around to do something different or you're in a news job, news job and you want to find another news job or something like that, if you live in London, then there are events called Hacks Hackers, which you can attend. There's a big community there. It's uh, once a month typically. But you'll find there are other people who've got similar ideas and similar thoughts. So um, meeting other people, like-minded people, is a good idea. Uh, I was a journalist. I didn't go to any of those kind of events. And uh, I don't know if they were around even then. But I think that's the thing I'd encourage. Meet the community. And, and sometimes that'll be you'll meet someone who will really re-energize you in your current role. Uh, it's not always about just going on to the next one. Um, and the third bit I'd say is always um, think about how you can work with new entrants into your news organization or your company. Because I think um, often work experience or work placements are, and the people who do them can quite easily be dismissed. And I think uh, increasingly we should be supporting people who want to come into journalism and making sure they feel welcome, their voice is heard. And uh, if there are ways to uh, um, support the new entrants and, and do that, then uh, that's uh, something I think we should all do. And then would you mind doing the intro to 60 Second News? But I'll, I'll just finish for you. Okay. Coming up next on BBC Three, here's Family Guy. That'll do. Yay. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts and why not tell a friend too? This helps our community grow and that enables me to keep making Freelance Pod.